Bible, you can turn to John chapter 5. We're going to be in the first 16 or 17 verses there. And today we're going to be looking at this idea that Jesus, the glorified Lord, is the Lord of the Sabbath. And we're going to look at that. But first, I want to tell you a miracle story. Uh, how many of you guys have read the book Miracles by Eric Metaxas? Anybody? Yeah, that's a great book. I want to encourage you to get that book. It's called Miracles by Eric Metaxas. And he is probably one of the most prolific Christian authors alive today. Uh, and Eric wasn't always a Christian. In fact, he grew up Greek Orthodox. And that book is, he's got some really hair-raising miracles in it. And I love reading about them. But my favorite one is his own. is a miracle that the Lord did for him when he first came to know Jesus. And Eric grew up Greek Orthodox. So what he says in the book is that I only ever had this uh, sort of amorphous idea of God, that God was just this impersonal force out there in the universe. And, and so I kind of believed in him, but I kind of didn't. I just didn't know. And then as, as he graduated from high school, he went off to Yale University, and he had big dreams. He had big plans. One of his big dreams was to get his degree in English and then become a uh, famous fiction author. And then several years after his degree in hand from Yale, he was working at a place called Union Carbide, proofreading technical manuals and miserable. He hated his life, he hated his job. He said, as a matter of fact, I had to move back in with my parents and that was embarrassing too. And he said every single day he drove to this job to immerse himself in this tedious, tedious routine of checking these technical manuals and all he could dream of is this thing that God had put in his heart of becoming someday this, this monumental or this really influential author. And so this desperation in his soul, this desperation in his heart began to bubble up and Eric said he began to pray in the only way he really knew how. These weren't religious prayers. He just would tell God, or whatever he thought was God out there in, in the ether somewhere, he would tell God how desperate and how miserable he was. And he would just sort of, in his own heart and in his own way, in his own language, just cry out to God. And every day he did another thing. As he drove to work, he would listen to the Top 40 radio station on the way to work. And his favorite band of all time was Led Zeppelin. And Led Zeppelin had a song at the time. This was their big hair sort of 80s rocker phase, not the cool classic rock phase, but they had a song called Heaven Knows. Heaven Knows. And he began to cry one day as that song came on the radio and he was driving to work and he said, God, do you know? Do you know? Are you there? Can you hear me? Do you know that I'm here and I'm reaching out to you? And if you did, could you just reach back? Could you just reach back and let me know that you are there and you know that I am here? And about the time he finished that prayer, he drove into his dreary parking garage, just this colorless place, and parked his car. And the song ended, and he turned his key, and he said, God, if you are there and you do know, would you let this song be playing when I come back out of work? And he says, and now as a Christian, I look back on that and think, how silly of a prayer. 
How silly that was to ask God for such a ridiculous thing. But at the time, I didn't know better. And he said he went into work and he forgot that prayer and he got lost in the tedium of work. He came out just mentally fatigued. And when he came out, he turned on his car and that song started playing again. And he started crying. He said, God, I know you're here. And it wasn't just the coincidence of the song. It was the invading presence of God. And I mean to tell you, that's real. God's invading presence He is a present, transforming reality. And that's what Eric experienced. Well, all the while, the whole time he had been wrestling with his faith, what had happened was he had a Christian, a clandestine uh, witness, who was telling him about Jesus and having these conversations with him. And eventually he had to just acknowledge, not only is God real, but Jesus of Nazareth is his son. And it's just a power. I think it's the best miracle in the whole book. You should get the book. And here's what I want you to know. God still meets us in unexpected ways. He still invades our space with his holy, sacred, awesome presence. I want to tell you what the main thought out of our passage is today. Here it is. I'll put it up on the screen. Miracles are revealing and they're provoking. They're revelational and they're provocational. On the one hand, they reveal what's true about the nature and character of God. They show us what God is like. And they show us what his character is like. But on the other hand, miracles can also reveal our character. They can reveal what's really in us, the state of the art in our own spiritual journey. They can reveal what's really going on like an x-ray or an MRI into your soul. And then they provoke us. They challenge us to action. And we have one of two responses when God shows up. When he begins to draw us. And he begins to do things. And we're aware that, yes, God is after me. Right? We have one of two options. You can reject him and harden your heart. Or you can open your heart and open your empty hands and receive him by faith. And so we have these two options. To harden our hearts further or to receive him. And that's just the big idea that we get out of the story today. I want to read it to you. I'm reading from the ESV today in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. We'll start at verse 1. It says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Uh, now, there in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate Pool in Aramaic, there was a pool called Bethesda, uh, which, was, which had five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Note that. That's the same time that Israel was in the wilderness before they went into the promised land. So one man was there for 38 years, and when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool, and and when the water is stirred up, and... And while I am I'm going, another steps down in before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once, the man was healed. He took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So G- the Jews, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, who are the Sabbath police, they came and said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed, but... He answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And now the man who had been healed, the paralytic, he did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in his place. And afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. 
God has healed you. Sin no more, so that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went straight away. He went right away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this is why uh, the Jews, the Jewish leaders, were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working and I'm working now too. And so let's look at a little bit, just quickly, the setting of the story because these things are important. Now, going forward in John's gospel, the Jewish leaders are going to intensify their opposition to Jesus, and it's going to happen over these three miracles. John 5, which is the healing of the paralytic at the pool. John 9, which is the healing of the blind man at another pool. And then we have John 11, which is the resurrection of Lazarus, and that is it. They are done with Jesus, and that is a real firestorm. So there's going to be this escalating pattern of conflict in these three miracles. So the setting of the sign, let's note it, the festival. He does not tell us what Jewish festival it was, and it could have been one of four. It could have been three that are in the Old Testament, which is uh, Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Feast of Pentecost. Or it could be Hanukkah. Later in the book, Jesus will actually celebrate Hanukkah. Uh, which is an intertestamental festival. So it's one of those festivals. The pool was said uh, by many, many scholars, historians, and archaeologists to be a complete fabrication. Total fabrication. Until about 50 years ago, they found it. And it was impossible to miss when archaeologists started digging because it's about a football field long and there's a pool adjacent to it. And guess what they found? They found that the pool was surrounded by five rooftop, a five rooftop colonnade, a portico, exactly the way John describes it, exactly, and you can visit it today in Israel. And now there are a multitude of invalids who are there gathered around the pool because in the ancient world, I'll explain a little bit more about this later, but in the ancient world, people just thought that hot spring waters fed by either a hot spring or an artesian well, which this one was, had healing powers. They just thought that. They did. Uh, And so, let's make some observations from the text relative to our main thought today. And the first one is this, that Jesus doesn't reserve restoration for the spiritually qualified or the well-connected. And this guy definitely isn't. In fact, I think we could say that Jesus finds the guy of all the people, the blind, the lame, the diseased, the leprous, or whoever they are, guys with eczema or scales or whatever it is, I think Jesus finds the person who looks like he's most in need, who's been there probably the longest, who just has camped out there. He's a squatter. And so the first thing we learn about the character of the man, now remember, miracles reveal the character of God and they reveal our character too. And the first thing that this story reveals about the man is this, is that he is utterly alone. Chapter 5, verse 7 says this, Jesus says, do you want to get well? And what's the first thing he says? Sir, I have no one. I don't have anybody. You know somebody like that? I met a guy like that uh, at the last church where I was associate pastor. His name was Fred. And I used to have uh, Patrick's job there. And I was the discipleship pastor for a long time. And uh, I would regularly set up sign-up booths in our lobby and uh, sort of invite people to come and sign up for classes or small groups that I was running. And this little guy, he was about 40, I found out he was about 48 years old. Uh, He was sitting on a bench right across from me, sort of kitty corner from me. And he just sat there and he looked miserable. And no one talked to him. And I just kept 
you know, people would come and they would talk to me and sign up for the class or get more information on the class. And then as the service began to start, he was still sitting there and I thought, I'm going to go meet him. So I went over and I introduced myself and said, hey, my name is Jeff. What's your name? He goes, oh, my name's Fred. Fred was developmentally delayed. I, I want to guess that Fred probably had the mental capacity of a five or seven-year-old, somewhere in there. He was 48 years old, but he still sort of talked and reasoned and, and acted like a kind of a five-year-old or a six-year-old or a seven-year-old. And I said, well, hey, my name is Jeff. Uh, are you new here? And I introduced myself. And right away, we struck up a friendship. And it's as if, have you ever seen like those baby ducks that are born? The mama duck is gone, but then there's like a puppy there and they follow the puppy around. That was me. I was the puppy. And he was the baby duck. He followed me around the church every time I was there, and I just loved on him. He was just such a neat guy. And I remember after a while, he signed up for every class and every small group we had, especially the men's groups. He loved those groups. And he was there every time the doors were open. He would come several times a week. He rode the bus. He knew how to ride the bus. He would uh, get off the bus. The bus stop was right in front of our church in the Kmart we used to meet in. And he would come in. And just sit and chat with me for 20, 25 minutes and then visit with all the other pastors. And I loved Fred, still do. And one day I invited him over to our house. Now what you need to know about him is not only was he mentally delayed, Fred was really crusty. And by crusty, I mean he had this little, he always wore this little gray, dark gray members only jacket. He had sort of these uh, really thick tufts of gray hair growing out of his ears. He had really bad eczema, so he had flakes on him all the time. Some people wouldn't talk to him for that because they just got grossed out. And I can see some of you are throwing up in your mouth right now. But listen, <laughs> he, he just, he was unaware of all of that. And the friendliest guy you ever want to meet. And so I invited him over for dinner. And he said, okay, yeah, that's fine. I can come over. And he sort of talked like the rain man. I mean, he's just the cutest, <laughs> cutest little guy. And so I picked him up at his, in front of his apartment building, which was downtown Spokane, drove him all the way out to Post Falls where I lived, 30-minute drive. And I had to warn him. I had to tell him. I have four hilarious, funny little kids. Be forewarned. Uh, they're cute and they're hilarious and so the house will be very noisy if, if is that okay with you he goes oh no it's fine it's fine and he had a smile from ear to ear he couldn't wait to come have dinner with us and so when we came in the house i'm pretty sure before he got five steps in the house he got hit with a nerf gun and like a he got whacked with a lightsaber you know like a plastic lightsaber and he just was beaming and he met our kids, and he, he was like, hi, how are you? What's your name? And they were like, they took off running. And he comes up and eats with us around the table and couldn't wipe the smile off of his face. And after about an hour of conversation, I drove him back home. And when we got to his house, he said, well, do you want to come up and see my apartment? And I go, absolutely. And this was an apartment dedicated to the mentally disabled. And so we went up, and I'm telling you, when you go in his apartment, it is spotless. Everything is ordered and just labeled, and wow. And I would love for my house to be that organized. And he took me out to the balcony, and what he said was, we, over, we looked out of the balcony, and there was the whole city of Spokane. He had such a beautiful view. And we're standing there, and I'm going, man, you have the best view. I said, uh, Fred, let me ask you something. What do you do when you're not at church? What do you do when you're, you're not in a small group or in a discipleship class or hanging out with some guy like me? And he goes, oh, nothing. I go, what do you mean, nothing? He goes, I sit right here. 
I go, well, do you have friends in the building? No. Nope. I said, Fred, do you spend time with anyone other than people at church? Nope. He sits there alone all day long looking at the city. And I, I tell you, I'm telling you, I put my best poker face on, but my heart just broke because I had never, ever met anyone who was that profoundly alone. And that's the guy we're talking about here. We're talking about a guy sitting by a pool, frankly, who is surrounded by people. A multitude, it says. Innumerable people there clamoring to get into what they think is magical water to heal them. And he doesn't know anybody. He says, I, sir, I have no one. And you don't have to be like this guy, the paralytic, or my friend, Fred, to feel lonely. To deal with loneliness. I deal with it on occasion. There are times when I have felt so lonely over the last year that I felt like my heart will break in two. And I have reached out to the invisible God who is there, and he is there. Don't you love the fact that this story says Jesus saw him and Jesus knew him? And whatever little lonely place you have in your heart right now, here's what I want you to know. Jesus sees you and he knows you. He knows you. And he's going to make a beeline for you. This guy has more problems though. The other thing that we learn about him is that he is disillusioned. Look at the rest of verse 7. He says, sir, I have no one. No one to help me. No one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Do you hear that little electrical current of disillusionment in his statement? Do you hear it? He's saying, you don't know how many times, mister, I've tried to get in that pool and maybe throw a Hail Mary pass into the end zone and just receive something from God, some magical blessing, some healing, and other people say they did, and you don't know how many times I've tried, but it's never worked. Why should I try it again? Here's the problem with disillusionment. You know this is the telltale sign your disillusion is when you are trusting in the wrong source. When your disillusionment is over something you thought should have provided a need that you had and you haven't looked to Jesus because the, the God of the universe in flesh, in human form is standing right before him and can give him anything he so requires or asks and he's trusting in this magical thing. And so there, there is a heart of disillusionment. Disillusionment is a sure symptom that our trust is in the wrong object. People will disappoint you. Other things that we trust in, they sometimes will let us down. They just do, but God never will. He's also superstitious. We mentioned this, verses three through seven. I want to show it to you. Now we're going to have a, just a quick technical discussion, okay? It's Christ Community Church. You know this is going to happen one time in the sermon, right? Starting with verse three. It says, In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease they had. Continue. Now a certain man was there who had, been in, had an infirmity for 38 years. Now, see that blue? That should not be in your Bible. The last half of verse 3 and all of verse 4. And here's why. 
because it does not appear in any known Greek manuscript, Greek copy of the New Testament of this story until the 6th century AD. So verse 3, or half of verse 3, and all of verse 4 doesn't appear, appears as early. The earliest that both of those verses appear together in a Greek copy of the New Testament is 500 years later. Something like that. So here's what happened. Here's what that scribe did. The scribe interpreted what he thought he was seeing in the story. This is what he thought he was seeing. First of all, there are a multitude of invalids around that pool. Why? Why are they there? Well, because they believe it has magical properties. Uh, secondly, this man, when Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed, what's his response? I can't get in the water. Okay, the scribe goes, yeah, there you go. Third thing that he knows is the universal, the universality of the existence of ancient cultic healing pools in the Greco-Roman world. They were everywhere in every city. People just thought that these kinds of pools had magical powers and that the gods were stirring the waters to heal other people. And he might know a fourth thing. He might know that this is not a Jewish pool, this is a Roman pool. This wasn't built uh, by Nehemiah. This pool was built by the Romans. And so he might know that as well. There's a second century letter in which a woman writes to the Roman emperor at the time, thanking him that the pool of Bethesda healed her, the gods healed her in this pool from a foot ailment. And so he may understand that this is what it was to the Greeks and the Romans. So that's why the scribe put it in the story, but it does not belong in the story. Because the earliest, most dependable, most reliable manuscripts of John's gospel do not have it there. Okay, enough said. So this is a superstition. The Bible, here's, here's a rule of interpretation I want to give you. The Bible does not always approve of what it records. The Bible does not always approve of what it records. It records the words of Satan. It doesn't approve of his interpretation of the Torah. <laughs> Okay, so here we have a record of a belief that these people had. Now, Jesus has come as the primary, singular competitor to a superstitious belief. And he doesn't even address the issue of the pool. He doesn't say, go get in the water. He says, get up. You don't need the water. You don't need that other thing you're trusting in when Jesus is in the room. That's what he does. So, but this man clearly is suffering a kind of superstition. He's also a blame shifter. He's a blame shifter. Now, this story is very much in contrast to the story in chapter 9 of the blind man healed at another pool. And the blind man, both of them are healed at a pool. Jesus takes the initiative in both stories to search them out, to seek them out. To, to initiate the healing. But the one guy receives Jesus and even defends Jesus. This guy doesn't do that. When he is accosted by the Sanhedrin or the religious leaders or the Pharisees, and they say, why are you carrying that mat in this temple? You're breaking our laws. His response is, oh, well, there's a guy who healed me and he told me to do it. Have you ever done that? Shifted blame? That's human nature. He says, the man who healed me, that man said, take up your bed and walk. Next, he's a sinner. Well, aren't we all? Yeah, but he's really bad. He's worse than you. Maybe not, but we don't know what sin Jesus is trying to address in his life. But here's what we do know. Jesus catches up with him later and confronts him and says, you better stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. See, God has made you well. God has given you a new way. What is he talking about? He's probably talking about the judgment day. 
Because that's definitely worse than being paralyzed. So whatever Jesus is talking about, we don't know, but we can't rule out the fact that even though this guy was not physically capable of sinning in a lot of ways that you and I might think, he's, he's a sinner, and Jesus needs to address this. Uh, many years ago, I uh, was in England, the north of England, in the Manchester area, and I stayed with a family, and they had a son who was struggling mightily through MS. And he and I hit it off right away. The very first night that I stayed there with that family, and I stayed with them for about a month, uh, he and I talked and talked and talked. And boy, he was ready to talk. Uh, unlike most English people that I found, this guy was ready to, ready to talk, man. And so he spilled his guts, and he told me he was paralyzed from about his collarbone down. The only thing he could do was lift his arms, and he sat in a wheelchair. And it was really sad. We took him out sailing one day, and it was a really neat experience with that family. And we sat there, and I was kind of a hardcore, I was pretty hardcore back then. And I was like, man, what sin do you need to confess to the Lord, brother? <laughs> you know, and uh, I'm not like that anymore. But um, he just spilled his guts. His name is Nigel. And Nigel began to tell me about a very rich fantasy life, about all the things he wanted to do that he's never been able to do because of his MS. And you know what his dream was? His dream that somebody would create a miracle cure to cure him or that God would cure him so that he could buy a plane ticket, move to Los Angeles, sit by a pool with sunshades on, and be surrounded by hot babes. That's what he told me his dream was. And he told me a lot more than that that I will not share. I will spare you of all that is, accompanies that. And so I led him in a prayer of confession of his sin right there. And what I discovered is the guy doesn't have to have the physical capability to follow through on what he's thinking. He could be a sinner and have a repeated pattern of failure in his thought life. And he confessed his sin and said, yeah. And, I, and then I had to tell him, uh, America's not like that. <laughs> you know, that's just, you see that on TV. But uh, Goochland, Virginia is not like that. You can come stay with me. So he's a sinner. And he also becomes an informant. At the very end of the story, he betrays Jesus. As soon, now watch this. As soon as he learns of Jesus' identity later, he runs and tells. That's clearly how the story comes across. He's not repentant. He's not celebrating. This guy runs and he tells on Jesus. And John says it's for this reason that Jesus was being persecuted in the temple area. So what do we learn about this person? He's imperfect. Yes, he's a sinner. He even holds some superstitious false beliefs that aren't true. And God has healed him. God has reached out compassionately to him. So we learn that God is sovereign in his miracles. Because Jesus doesn't just clear that pool out of invalids. And God's compassion for lonely, broken, and even hard-hearted individuals is present. It is present. Hear me well. Sometimes a broken heart can become a hard heart. Did you hear that? Sometimes a broken heart can become a hardened heart unless we lay it before the Lord. But God doesn't require polished religious credentials. And he doesn't require it in you either. All he requires is an open heart and a willing mind and an open person. Number two, Jesus challenges our faith to grow it. Jesus is going to challenge our faith in order to grow our faith. Now, in the story, the first challenge that we find is the challenge, do we want to get well? And this, we, it's, it's easy to almost read right over this. Do you want to get well? Do you want to be healed? 
Do you know someone who doesn't want the consequences of their ailment or their situation, whatever circumstance or situation that they're in? They don't want that. But if they were to be healed, it would cost them dependence. It would cost them a dependent relationship or it would cost them a dependent addiction or it would cost them some dependence that they are relying on right now. Now, this guy is a beggar. And in the first century, being a beggar was the only way that a person like him could receive any sustenance, any basic sustenance at all. And so he has subsisted on the generosity of the people walking by or the temple generosity toward him. And now if Jesus heals him, what's he going to do? He spent 38 years, doesn't have any skills, he doesn't know how to do anything. And so... There's a high cost to healing sometimes. And, there, I, and unfortunately, I have met people. I, I knew a guy. Uh, he, was safe, he had been saved for a long time. But when he was younger, he was a knucklehead and he was in and out of jail. And uh, he described prison to me. And I said, man, it sounds like prison is a place you would never want to end up no matter what. It sounds horrible. He goes, oh, it is. He goes, but you know what's worse when you're young and you're a knucklehead and you don't know how to do anything? Freedom. He goes, because at least it was a roof over my head and a hot meal on the table and a bed to sleep in. And sometimes we, we, we embrace prisons, we embrace certain, uh, a lack of freedom because of what it would cost us. It costs us responsibility. Now this man has to go out. He has to go out and find a job. Where does Jesus find him? Where does Jesus find him? In the temple. Like he's healed. And later, he didn't go out to the fields. He could have actually found a job helping people out in the fields, but he doesn't do that. He's still in the temple. Why? Because the only thing he knows is waving that cup around and asking people for alms for the poor. That's all he knows. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? The second challenge is this. Do you want to grow? Do we want to grow? Verse 5, verse 14, afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you're well now. Stop sinning. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. When Jesus searches for him later, he finds him in the temple complex right back where he was. Do we want to move beyond where we were? Do we want to grow in our faith? Jesus is never content to heal us. Uh, Jesus wants to heal us. He wants to heal your pain. He wants to heal your body. Jesus wants to heal your mind. He wants to heal you. He wants to restore us to right relationship with God, but he is never content to save you. He wants to sanctify you. He wants you and I to begin to get into a life where we are walking with him and being transformed and changed into the image of the Son. The third challenge is do you want to be free of heartless religion? This is a big one in the text. Ancient people would see it. You and I, modern people, we kind of miss this, but this is a big one. Verses 9 through 10, it says, Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's a Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to be taking up your bed on the Sabbath. Where, is, where are they getting this? Where are they getting this? They're not getting it from Moses' law. The only passage in the Old Testament where, that could justify a law like this is Jeremiah 17. And in Jeremiah 17, the context is clear. They are forbidden to carry their, the accoutrements for their business, their mercantiles and their business, to the temple court to make money on the Sabbath. That's the context. And what had the Jews in Jesus' day done? What'd they do? Well, they made some more laws to clarify that law. 
they made more religion. What they had done is created an entire system of circuitous, complex religion to safeguard what was written in the Torah, the core. And all of these laws, Jesus says, you set aside the law of Moses for the sake of your own traditions. This is a false religion. And Jesus, Jesus could have healed this guy on any day. He could have waited 24 hours and healed the guy the next day, no problem, <laughs> right? No problem. But he does it intentionally on the Sabbath because he wants to address this false religion. So now we need to unpack this, folks. What is false religion? Established false religion is usually marked by these things. I want to show it to you. A focus on the institution rather than the individual. Established false religions usually focus on the individual serving as a drone or a cog in the machine serving the institution. And Jesus came to punch that in the nose. Jesus came to stop that. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That is what he's trying to show them. The institution was designed to minister to you, not to stand in a magisterial relationship over you. That's what it was designed to do. And there are legacy systems. What are legacy systems? Well, these are religious systems that are old enough that nobody knows where they came from. Nobody was around when they were invented, but they don't go back to the Old Testament. We have them today. They're old enough to be tradition, but they don't go back to the New Testament. So this law that they are forcing on the people does not go back to Moses. It does not go back to the prophets. It doesn't. And this is a legacy system that they've inherited and been born into, and everybody thinks it's old. It smacks of antiquity, but it's not. The oldest this law could be is 160 BC, because that's when the Pharisees were created as a sect of people uh, to help the Hasmoneans. And then from 160 BC up until this day, 190 years, they became one of the dominant political powers in Jerusalem. That's where the law comes from. They invented it. But it doesn't go back to Moses, and it doesn't go back to the prophets, but it feels old. It's just a legacy system you've inherited. And then there are legendary beliefs. Here's what happens. Beliefs, legendary beliefs, begin to be formed in the community. They're not verifiable. They're not historical. They don't go back to the word. And they're frankly apocryphal. They're fictional. But people have believed them and told them and lived them for so long that they just think that they're, that they're Old Testament. And they're not Old Testament. They're actually apocryphal beliefs. They're fictional. And Jesus is confronting this. And then you have magisterial authority structures. So these authoritarian control structures, they live. This is this, the name of the game is controlling your life. Controlling your life. So instead of loving you and serving you and caring for you and teaching you and correcting you when you need it and bringing you into the community of faith deeper in your walk with God, instead, it's a system of control where they control you in every aspect of your life. That's false religion. And Jesus is there to confront it. He is there to confront it. Jesus is not only challenging the cultic beliefs of magical healing waters in Bethesda, he is also challenging the ever-expansive tendencies of man-made religion. That's what he's there to do. And he's there not to set us free to religion, but to set us free from it. 
Jesus did not come to save us to a new religion. He came to save us from slavish devotion to impotent, powerless, man-made religion. That's what he came to do. So I want to remind you of the takeaway today. Miracles are revealing and they're thought-provoking. They reveal the character of God. They reveal what's true about us. And then they provoke us. They challenge us to make a decision. We are either going to warm our hearts to him in faith and receive him with open hearts and open hands, or we're going to harden ourselves like this man apparently did. So I have some takeaway questions for you today. And the first one is this. Is there a God event? Is there a miracle A need that you have that only Jesus can meet. Because I guarantee you, there are needs that you have in your soul that only Jesus, enthroned in heaven, can meet for you. What are they? Will you be bold enough to ask God, God, I, I need you. I did this last night as I was falling asleep, man. I was just crying out to God, saying, God, I need you. This is what I need from you. Two, Do you feel undeserving, alone, or perhaps disillusioned by religion? Have you been burned by bad religion? You may have given up on religion, my friend. Don't give up on Jesus. If you you give up on religion, don't give up on Jesus because he's calling you to a deep and abiding relationship with the Father through himself. And number three, are you holding on to any sacred false beliefs that are keeping you from Christ today? Is there something you were taught? You were just brought up to believe this and you can't shake it. You can't kill that sacred cow. You can't do it. You can't melt down that golden calf because you were just taught this. Will you let it go today? If it's a barrier between you and Jesus. Fourthly, is there an identifiable pattern of sin that is holding you back from restoration and growth? Is there something you need to confess Like my English friend Nigel, is there something where you just, somebody needs to lead you or you need to lead yourself and say, God, I confess, this is what's been going on in my mind and this is what no one knows about me and it's between you and me and I want to get rid of it, confess it. And then fifthly, are you ready to face the challenges that restoration can bring, the responsibilities that new and new opportunities that healing and restoration to God can bring. Because I guarantee you, it will cost you. Discipleship is costly. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus and you've been wanting, like Eric Metaxas, you just have been crying out to God and you don't know. You think he's real. You think he's there. But your heart has been reaching out. Would you just make the decision right now to put your trust and your faith in Jesus of Nazareth for salvation? Salvation is something he alone can provide for you. No one else can give it to you. No one else. Will you receive it freely as a free gift right now? Receive it. And if you're here this morning and you are a Christian and you are saved, but there is something between you and your God there is some sinful pattern or some false belief or an attitude or a relationship, whatever it is, will you confess that to the Lord right now? God, we confess. We confess that this obstacle is between you and us. And if there's a need you have this morning, will you just reach out to the Lord? Will you just cry out and say, God, I I just need you. I need you in this way. I need you to help me through this deal that I'm going through because I don't have the resources. I, don't, I just don't have it. I don't have the frame. I just don't have what it takes to bear up under the weight of this. I need your help. Will you reach out to the invisible God right now? Will you do that?
Amen.